0: I'm in Ruth, uh, so if you want to follow me, I'm in Ruth. I'm going to be reading chapter 4. Last week, um, we were thinking that Boaz, in chapter 1, stayed in the place of his calling, even when times became very hard. And as I was chatting with Jim just before the service, that's clearly one of the things that Steve was talking to you about yesterday, staying in the place. There has been a mass exodus from the villages into the towns and cities. People much prefer bigger churches, it seems, and smaller churches. Yet there are a million people or more living in villages across our land. A lot of people. And uh, they need people to be living alongside them. So there's something about knowing the calling of God and staying in that place of calling. Then in chapter 2 we were looking at Boaz obeying his obligations to God's word even when it was costly. He lived out his life before God even though to do so was a costly thing. In chapter 3, Naomi uh, encourages Ruth, basically, to go and put herself at the mercy of Boaz. She needs to be married. A widow in that culture was a very vulnerable person, very vulnerable indeed. Without a husband to speak for her, very vulnerable. So she needs a husband and Naomi is keen that she should have a husband and Boaz seems to be the likely guy, though he seems, on the face of it, to be much older than her. Because he compliments her that she didn't run after the younger men, whether young, whether um, rich or poor, so he seems to be older. So she puts herself in in his hands, and uh, he acts with great delicacy and great purity towards her. In chapter three, and promises to do something on her regard. He'll marry her if it's possible. But he says there's actually someone closer to you who has that obligation should he wish to take it up. So we'll pick up the story at chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And then the author gives us a little bit of information about what used to happen. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Gosh, that was simple, wasn't it? (laughs) So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite's, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his, dead, his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman-redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Which seems an appropriate way to finish on a Father's Day, doesn't it? Which is kind of in my thinking when I thought about this. We'd end up here. Because, my friends, you see, the claim to fame that Boaz has is simply that he is a father. That's it. That's why he's included in the Bible. That includes quite a lot of us guys, doesn't it? It's a story about ordinary people. It's a story about an ordinary guy who takes his faith seriously, lives it out carefully and is joined to not only the whole scriptures but the genealogy of Jesus. So let's look at chapter 3 very briefly. And here's the title for it. Boaz acted honorably towards others, even when tempted to do otherwise. Boaz acted honorably towards others, even when tempted to do otherwise. The way we treat others is to de- be determined by the way you treat the l- least person you meet in life. Not the important people. Clearly you'll give them some sort of deference. It's how you treat the ordinary people. Now, remember that the book of Ruth is set in the book of Judges. I'm not going to read the whole story from the book of Judges that I want to refer to, because to be honest, it's a bit awful. And if it was printed as a separate book, it would never make any Christian bookshelf at all. It's a story of lust, rape, rape murder, selfishness, greed, civil war, hatred, violence. It's awful. It's got all the ingredients of ordinary life. But I'm going to refer to it. Judges 19 is the story where a Levite has a concubine. She's unfaithful to him and goes back to her father. He obviously loves her, goes to her father and says, I want my wife back. She says, hang on a minute. And her her father says, hang on a minute. And they spend a few days together enjoying each other's company. But eventually they want to go back home. So they travel back home, the Levite, his concubine, and his servant. But they've left it late in the day. And they go to, through Jerusalem. And the servant says, well, why don't we stay here? Why don't we stay here for um, overnight? And the Levite says, we won't stay in a place, because at that time, Jerusalem wasn't part of Israel. David made it part of Israel, but it wasn't at that point. So the Levite says, no, we better not stay in an alien town, because they might not treat us well. Listen. They might not treat us well. we better go to a town in Israel. So they go to Gibeah, which is in Benjamin, part of Israel. And they stay, eventually, with an old man, because no one takes them in overnight. And this old man takes them in, and the men of the town surround his door and say, we want that man out, because we want to have sex with him. I'm not talking about pagans, my friend. I'm talking about the people of God here. The people who have the law of God, who have had the grace of God poured upon them for by this time hundreds of years. This is the people of God talking. We're not talking about some pagan nation that does despicable things. Plenty of those around. This is the people of God and men in the people of God, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe, remember, from which King Saul will come? So the man says, no, don't do that. Listen to this. I've got a virgin daughter and this man's concubine. Have them, you can do what you like to them, but don't do this despicable thing to my visitor. What kind of man does that? Can you imagine the terror of this concubine who gets pushed out the door amongst this howling mob who then rape her to death? This, my friends, is among the people of God. Makes the blood run cold, doesn't it? Makes the hair stand on the back of the neck? This is awful, isn't it? What effect so far has the grace of God had on these people then? In those days they had no king. Everyone did, the writer tells us, as he saw fit. That's the culture in which Boaz is living. But people do that sort of stuff. So when this woman washes herself, perfumes herself, and lays down at his feet in a barn where they've been having harvest festival and all a bit too drunk, really. I'm not suggesting he's overwhelmingly drunk, but he's not going to drive his donkey home. He's going to stay overnight there. So she lays down at his feet. She puts himself, herself at his mercy. He lives in a culture where people bang on others' doors to do their own business. It's a very risky thing for Ruth to do. And what does Boaz say? He says, stay there until morning. I will honour your desire for me to become your husband if I'm able to. But get up before it's early morning because I don't want anyone to cast any aspersions on your character because you have a good reputation among everyone here and I'm not going to do anything. And he actually gives her a whole load of barley to take home to her mother-in-law. And everything's done with great decorum. So Ruth throws herself on his mercy but he treats her with dignity and honor. He doesn't act selfishly, but with huge restraint and kindness. He acts to put her mind at ease and to ensure that no misunderstanding could arise that would damage her reputation. In the story in Judges 19 and 20, that story results in murder and warfare and civil war, and almost the wiping out of one of the tribes of Israel. The outcome of that one act of such appalling brutality is incalculable. But the outcome of one man's self-restraint, sexual purity, and kindness will result in incalculable blessings. Because through his Son will come the Savior of the world. And it was this ethos that had worked its way into his employees as they cared for Ruth in his workplace. So his prayer for her in chapter 2, verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you've done, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, is amply rewarded. And indeed it shows his desire that she should be blessed. How do we treat ordinary people? During my second month at college, our professor gave us a pop quiz. I was a conscientious student and had breezed through the questions until I read the last one. What is the first name of the woman who cleans the school? Surely this was some kind of joke. I'd seen the cleaning woman several times. She was tall, dark-haired, in her 50s, but how would I know her name? I handed in my paper, leaving the last question blank. Just before class ended, one student asked if the last question would count towards our quiz grade. Absolutely, said the professor. In your careers, you will meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. I've never forgot that lesson. And by the way, her name was Dorothy. How do you treat people? The prevailing culture treats people mostly appallingly. If you're an employer, how do you treat your employees? With the kind of dismissive arrogance that many companies do? Or with kindness and tenderness and care? If you're an employee, how do you treat those you have to serve? With kindness or with abruptness and so forth? How do we treat people around? Boas was a kind of man who treated everyone with dignity. They were safe with him, in good hands with him. Here's the second, chapter 4, which we read. Boaz trusted his future to God even when he couldn't guarantee the outcome. Oh, if we can guarantee the outcome, we're pretty good at trusting, aren't we? If we we know what's going to happen, then we go for it. But the whole point about trusting God is, of course, that we don't know the outcome. We don't know how things are going. But he's prepared to trust God even when he can't guarantee the outcome. Remember, the book of Judges is his culture. That's his contemporary culture. And loads of other people want to take the future into their own hands. Now Samson is a very interesting guy. His story appears in chapter 16 among other places earlier on and then up to chapter 16. And I challenged a group of people the other day to tell me something good about Samson. Can you think of anything good about Samson? That was the only thing that someone said. They said that he didn't cut the hair his parents had left grow long. So I'd said I couldn't find anything wrong, so I I now ticked that one off. It's the only thing he did that was right. Can you think of anything else? This was a man completely selfish in every regard. i show you how selfish he was. Do you remember he was caught because the hair was cut off and all that? It wasn't to do with the hair, it was to do with the power of God. But he was caught by the Philistines, they put out his eyes, remember that? And then have him doing ox things, and he gets really peeved by this. And he gets taken to the temple, doesn't he? And he's asked to lean against the temple pillars because he wants to what? Well, this is what he says. He wants to bring it down. And he says, then Samson prayed to the Lord. This is going to be the last thing he's going to do, okay? Last prayer. Oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Well, that's not bad. Oh, God, please strengthen me one, just once more. This is good. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. His last thing he says is, I want revenge. I want to control details. Not, Lord, let me with one fell swoop kill these people against your people for the glory of your name. He doesn't say that. He says, for my two eyes. He's selfish right to the end. I know my own heart, how selfish I am. So I don't hold him up and criticize him emptily. I know the selfishness of my own heart. That's the culture in which Boaz lives. But Boaz is not that kind of guy. He wants to marry Ruth, but he's not going to manipulate it so it happens. He's not going to engineer things. His generosity is matched by self-control. He insists on doing it the right way. He says, I would love to marry you. But there is actually someone else who has a prior claim. So he gets that guy. He's obviously a man of influence because he sits in the city gate where all the action happens and he says to the come over here. And the guy does. And he gets the elders, come over here. And they do. And he says, they've got something to talk about. Elimelech and Naomi are childless. So presumably all of Elimelech's property is passed on to Naomi in lieu of her sons. Of course, who are both dead because she has no heir. So by marrying Ruth, a kinsman would ensure that Elimelech's family and property will not leave that clan. It won't be absorbed into a a super farm that will then provide all its stuff to Tesco. It becomes separate, right? It's important because land was very important. It was where you lived. Lose your land. And a farmer was telling me just the other day, the, the very last thing a farmer will ever sell is his land. It's a sign of desperation. So God was very clear. You could not sell the land. He did not want it to go out of the land. And every 50 years, it was meant to go back. But Boaz is close, but someone is closer. And so he says, you have the right. Although he wants to marry Ruth, he's not going to take control himself. He's going to let things take their course because he trusts God for his future, even when he's not sure how it's going to turn out. We know how it turns out because we read the story. But he doesn't know that. So he takes action in a public place, in front of the elders, very publicly, transparently, so there can be no dispute about what's done. No one could ever say, ah, ah, you did the wrong thing there, Boaz. It may well go to the other man. This would be a disappointment to Boaz. He would be really disappointed. But he's also thinking about what's best for Ruth, not just himself. And it's only when the other man, who, interestingly enough, we are not told his name, are we? his name is never mentioned, declines the offer that Boaz can step up and make his claim. And he says, well, I accept this responsibility. I will do the right thing. And Ruth becomes his wife. And now you know the story. So trusting the outcome to God doesn't necessarily mean it will go my way. It did go Boaz's way, but there's no guarantee of that. What it will guarantee is it will go God's way. Which is actually what we want, isn't it? We actually want it to go God's way, not our way. So Jim's already mentioned, it's not my ministry, his ministry, your ministry, anyone's ministry, except the Lord's. We want his will be, to be done. So your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. And when we keep that before us, then we know the answer is always going to be, yes, it will, don't we? Even if it doesn't comply with me. Someone writing about Boaz said about him, here was a man dependent on God, caring for employees, concerned for the poor, protective of the vulnerable, generous, joyous in celebration, redemptive, sexually pure, community minded. Indeed, this person goes on to say, Boas shows us that being a disciple at work, as indeed elsewhere, is about demonstrating that putting the values of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ at the heart of a workplace or a life might actually be Good news, as indeed it is, isn't it? When God is able to take prime place wherever we are, whatever we do, then suddenly the gospel is filled full. And people see it to be good news. Boaz's actions would one day lead to King David and ultimately to Jesus. Both Ruth and Boaz's light are included at length in God's story of salvation. But they never knew it. They just lived and died. And all they had was a son called Obed. There's no record of them having any others. They could have had a whole bunch of children. We just know about Obed. Their only claim to fame, that as an ordinary couple, they lived carefully to the glory of God, had their children, and then went on in life. Doesn't that encourage you? We may never see the effect of our lives in this life. Sometimes we do. You are right for a little story just to end? Ted Stellard, undoubtedly qualified as one of the least, turned off by school, very sloppy in appearance, expressionless, unattractive. Even his teacher, Miss Thompson, enjoyed wielding her red pen as she placed crosses against his many wrong answers. If only she had studied his records more carefully. They read, 1st grade. Ted shows promise with his work and attitude but has a poor home situation. 2nd grade. Ted could do better. Mother seriously ill, receives little help from home. 3rd grade. Ted is good boy but too serious. He is a slow learner. His mother died this year. 4th grade. "'Ted is very slow, but well-behaved. "'His father shows no interest whatsoever. "'Christmas arrived. "'The children piled elaborately wrapped gifts "'on their teacher's desk. "'Ted brought one, too. "'It was wrapped in brown paper "'and held together with Scotch tape. "'Miss Thompson opened each gift "'as the children crowded round to watch. "'Out of Ted's package fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet "'with half of the stones missing "'and a bottle of Chief perfume. "'The children began to snicker, but she silenced them by splashing some of the perfume on her wrist and letting them smell it. She put the bracelet on too. At day's end, after the other children had left, Ted came by the teacher's desk and said, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother, and the bracelet looks real pretty on you. I'm glad you like my presents. And he left. And Miss Thompson got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her and to change her attitude. The next term, the children were greeted with a reformed teacher, one committed to loving each of them, especially the slow ones, especially Ted. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, Ted began to show great improvement. He actually caught up with most of the students and even passed a few. Time came and went. Miss Thompson heard nothing from Ted for a long time. Then one day, out of the blue, she received this note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I will be graduating second in my class. Love, Ted. Four years later, another note arrived. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I will be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Ted. And four years later, dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stallard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You are the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Miss Thompson attended that wedding and sat where Ted's mother would have sat. The compassion she had shown that young man entitled her to that privilege. Sometimes you do know the effect you have on the life of another, sometimes you don't. But the calling, as you stay here in the place of your calling, as you live out before Hurseman Zoo, is not to become super saints but just to live out your life to the glory of God in everything you do and leave God to work out the implications of that. Any one of us and every one of us just living our ordinary lives as we do so to the glory of God can see his kingdom come and his will done. You never know where living the kind of life that pleases God will lead. But when we do, we can be sure we will be making a difference. Father, you have fed us with bread and wine. You've given us of yourself. Now we give ourselves to you, Lord. Confident in the knowledge that we are safe with you. As you fill us with your spirit, enable us to live each day, Lord, embracing the day intentionally and living to the glory of God with joy in our hearts. Fill us with your love your joy, your peace, your strength. And let our lives bear fruit, fruit that will last, which will be to the Father's glory. Amen.